One of the two Tennessee Democrats expelled from the State House last week over a gun control protest has been restored to a seat. It's Tuesday, April 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the search for a motive in the latest mass shooting in this country. Five people were killed and eight others hurt yesterday at a bank in Kentucky. Also this hour, with overcrowding and staffing shortages, Boston area hospitals wonder if they could respond like they did to the Boston Marathon bombings 10 years ago. If you imagine a large amount of patients coming in from a mass casualty on top of what we're caring for, it's a disaster upon a disaster. And why some American intersex youth are being forced into surgeries. More so, we're told that these procedures need to be done for our wellness, that we actually need to be fixed to be normal. Sunny and around 70 today, it's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Five people have now died from a shooting at a bank yesterday in Louisville, Kentucky. Eight people remain hospitalized, including one Louisville police officer who was critically injured. Dalen Riggs was able to escape the building during the shooting. I just walked right past the conference room where everyone was. And then I came down and I had to grab something. And then on my way back up to the elevator, I just hear this loud. I thought there was like something like dropping because they were doing some construction or some renovations in there. And, and yeah, I got up there and the guy was like, run, there's a shooter. Louisville police killed the gunman who was a bank employee. He was 25 years old. Four days after the Tennessee Democrat Justin Jones was expelled from the state house, the Nashville Metro Council has voted to reinstate him. From member station WPLN, Cynthia Abrams reports, Jones and another black Democratic lawmaker were expelled after participating in a gun control protest on the state house floor. In addition to a unanimous vote reinstating Justin Jones, council members elected to suspend a month-long waiting period to fill the seat. Nashville Metro Council member Sandra Sepulveda thanked her constituents for speaking up. I know that a lot of the community members called and emailed us, and uh, I think they did a great job because we didn't have a single objection to suspension of the rules today. Justin Jones will now serve in the State House on an interim basis, pending a special election. The Shelby County Board of Commissioners will consider reseating Justin Pearson, the other expelled lawmaker, on Wednesday. For NPR News, I'm Cynthia Abrams in Nashville. Some states are stockpiling the abortion medication Mifepristone. This comes after a federal judge in Texas ruled the drug was wrongly approved by the FDA. The Justice Department has appealed that decision. The agency points to another federal judge's ruling in Washington state that says the FDA needs to keep the drug on the shelves. The Justice Department says the two rulings appear to be in conflict. A new report finds the last U.S. Census may have undercounted Asian Americans in certain states and some rural counties. As NPR's Hansi Lo Wong reports, those undercounts would have long-term effects on political representation and federal funding. The Census Bureau announced last year that its headcount in 2020 had a national overcount of Asian Americans, driven by counting residents more than once and different addresses. But a new report by the advocacy group Asian Americans Advancing Justice, AAJC, finds potential undercounts of the Asian populations in seven states, including Alaska, Iowa, and New Hampshire, as well as rural counties in the Midwest, Mountain West, and the South. When any group is under or overcounted in the census, the communities where they live face the risk of not getting their fair share of representation in government and of federal money for health care, transportation, and other public services. Anzi Luang, NPR News. 
This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Abortion providers and advocates are applauding Governor Healy's decision to stockpile the abortion pill Mifepristone. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, future access to the medication is tied up in federal courts. A federal judge in Texas moved last week to pause the FDA approval of the commonly prescribed abortion pill Mifepristone. Now, Governor Healy says the state is working to order 15,000 doses. That's more than a year's supply. Planned Parenthood League of Massachusetts Vice President of Medical Services Danielle Roncari says the move helps her organization. I mean, I think it's incredibly important because it allows us to continue to provide the most effective evidence-based regimen for medication abortion despite what is happening in Texas. Roncari says Planned Parenthood is also working to increase their supply of mifepristone. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Boston will celebrate the life of prominent civil rights activist Mel King today. King died last month at 94 years old. His funeral will be held today. Governor Healy and Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will speak at the service in the South End. Massachusetts nursing homes are nearly at capacity. That's in part because of a worker shortage. A new study from the Massachusetts Senior Care Association finds more than 3,000 licensed beds in nursing homes are unfilled because they can't be staffed. Gary Abrahams is the chief operating officer of the association. He says the state lent a hand with funding during the COVID pandemic in an attempt to solve this problem. The state has been great in terms of providing wage increases and developing new initiatives for labor and workforce, but that takes time. You can't snap your fingers and fix the problem. Abraham says his group hopes to create a scholarship program to train certified nursing assistants to ease the staffing crunch. The fastest Bostonians in this year's Boston Marathon will be honored with a new award. The Boston Athletic Association says the fastest Bostonian award will be given to the Boston man and woman with the best finish times. This is also the first year the marathon is offering a category for non-binary runners. One Boston resident is running in this category. The city says it'll recognize them with a personalized award. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org slash Tanglewood. The Red Sox lost a pitcher's duel last night against the Tampa Bay Rays. They fell 1-0 in Florida. The Sox and Rays will play again tonight. Tonight, the Bruins have their last home game of the regular season. They'll take on the Washington Capitals. Mostly sunny today and in the 70s, a red flag warning will be in effect later today, which means conditions are ripe for brush fires. Cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 50s, partly sunny tomorrow, and in the upper 60s. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. 
And I'm Leila Faldil. Another mass shooting in this country, this time at a bank in Louisville. A gunman that authorities believe was or had been a bank employee opened fire on colleagues before police arrived and killed him. Nine people were taken to the hospital. Six people are dead, including the gunman. Several people remain hospitalized. We have Justin Hicks of Louisville Public Media with us to get the latest on this mass shooting. What do we know about what happened? Yeah, so we know it was just before 9 o'clock yesterday as most people were getting to work when a 25-year-old male that police ID'd as Connor Sturgeon entered Old National Bank. He was an employee there, and luckily the bank hadn't opened to customers yet, but he came in armed with a rifle and opened fire, live-streaming the entire thing on the Internet. Police say they got a call about a shooter arrived on the scene in just three minutes. And when they showed up, there was almost immediately a firefight in which the gunman was killed and two officers were shot, one of them in the head. That officer, 26-year-old Nicholas Wilt, had just gotten out of the police academy about two weeks ago. And uh, he was rushed to a nearby hospital where he had brain surgery. And those other two officers, uh, there were two two other officers who were also injured. Wow. So when they were able to clear the scene, what did they find? Yeah, so as police got into that crime scene, they found a really grim scene. Four victims were killed by the shooters, all employees of Old National Bank. Their names are Tommy Elliott, Jim Tut, Joshua Barrick, and Juliana Farmer. They all ranged in their age from 60s to 40. Uh, And in addition to those deceased, six other workers were taken to the hospital for a variety of injuries, One of them was the bank's executive administrative officer, Deanna Eckert. She passed away last night, raising the death toll to five victims. Jacqueline Gwyn Villaruel is the interim chief for Louisville Metro Police Department, and she credited those officers who showed up and acted immediately. For my LMPD officers who took it upon themselves to not wait to assess everything, but just went in to stop the threat so that more lives would not be lost. Thank you. And in addition to being appreciative to those that responded, the police chief said these shootings just need to stop. This should not continue to happen. Evil should not try to prevail and take over our city. And we let it happen. Hmm. So many people must be grieving right now. How are people dealing with this across Louisville? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, as we know, this happens all over the country, but it's like you always hear People are just stunned that it came to this city, right? Louisville's Mm. a city, but it's still the kind of place where people know each other from high school or church or whatever. And so so many of the victims are not just names here. They are people that people know. Mm. Um, And so to answer that more directly, though, there there were several vigils last night across the city and even more planned in the coming days. Um, For instance, last night, Cherry Vaughn was at a vigil. She used a sound system at a local church, and she talked to folks about the importance of everyone finding ways to pitch in during the healing process. We should be sleeping easy because somebody's family doesn't have a loved one tonight. And it's not my family today, but it's somebody else's. And so my heart goes out to those families that lost loved ones. I think the most heartbreaking thing about what you're describing is just how familiar it is in this country now. It's a 146 mass shooting just this year. What should we expect next in the investigation? Yeah, we'll get the common questions about the shooter's motives and the weapons that were used. But, you know, the officials say they want to just focus on the uh, people who were killed, the people still hospitalized, and everyone who's traumatized, whether they're at the bank or not. Justin Hicks of Louisville Public Media. Thank you, Justin. Yeah, you're welcome.
mass shootings like the one in Louisville on Monday do get a lot of media coverage, and perhaps that's understandable. They are horrifying, and in a lot of cases, attention might be the point. But what about the other kinds of gun violence, the kind you might hear about on the local news or from your neighbors? How pervasive is that, and how does that kind of violence affect us? Those are the questions answered in a new poll out this morning from KFF. That's a nonprofit focused on healthcare research. NPR health policy correspondent Selena Simmons-Duffin is here with us now to tell us more about it. Good morning, Selena. It is amazing to see some answers to questions that have probably been on a lot of our minds. So what did the researchers find? Well, they found that many Americans have personal experiences with gun violence. So one in five had a family member killed by a gun. One in five have been threatened with a gun, and nearly as many have personally witnessed a shooting. Here's Ashley Kurzinger from KFF, who worked on this survey of more than 1,200 people. You put it all together, and it's like more than half. So a majority of adults in this country have either personally experienced or had a family member experience one of these incidences of gun violence. She says that translates to a lot of stress, especially in certain groups. A third of both Black and Hispanic adults say they worry either every day or almost every day about themselves or someone they love being a victim of gun violence. Kurzinger says we're a nation living in fear. So, Selena, say more about what kinds of incidents the researchers were looking at, because as, as you've just said, as they just said, that, you know, gun violence beyond mass shootings is actually more typical. So say more about the kinds of things they were looking at. Selena? I think we've, I think, uh, let's see if we can get Selena back um, to tell us more about this important survey. I mean, I think that the survey information seems to... Um, contradict some of perhaps the assumptions that we might have about uh, gun incidents, the fact that many of these happen within homes, these might be domestic violence, these might be accidents, these might be suicides. Uh, this is the kind of thing that perhaps does not get the kind of media attention that uh, we are accustomed to to giving. Let's see if we can get Selena back to tell us a bit Hi. more. All right, Hi, there she is. Sorry okay, great. That. Nope. So glad you're back with us. So there's yeah. uh, let's one more clip from the researcher. What let's let's hear from Adam uh, Kurzinger again. It's impacting all of our decisions, decisions to take public transit, to go out at night, to go to festivals. One in five parents have even thought about changing where their kid goes to school or have. That's so Ashley Kinziger, sorry. And uh, yeah. go ahead, overall the poll found. Overall the poll found that eight in 10 adults have done at least one, of, one thing as a precaution to protect themselves or a loved one from the possibility of gun violence. And before we let you go, there was a school shooting just last month in Nashville. Three nine-year-olds killed along with three staffers. What did the poll say about kids and gun violence as briefly as you can? Yeah, so they, they said that um, only half of the people surveyed knew that the leading cause of death among kids and teens in this country is firearms now, and that parents who have a gun in the home say that 10 um, Six in 10 store it in the same place as ammunition. A third store it loaded. A third also keep it unlocked. So Kurzinger told me this is there's an opportunity here for doctors okay. and pediatricians to bring this up and to okay. try to reduce the number of accidents. That is NPR Selena Simmons, Stefan Selena. Thanks so much. Thank you. 
When George Floyd was killed by Minneapolis police three years ago, a lot of colleges issued statements supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, among them a small community college in ultra-conservative North Idaho. The resulting backlash set off a chain of events that might now result in that college closing its doors. Northwest Public Broadcasting's Lauren Patterson reports. North Idaho College is a two-year school with a campus on the picturesque shores of Lake Coeur d'Alene. It offers degrees in things like dental hygiene and diesel technology. But when the school's Diversity Council expressed support for Black Lives Matter and other causes, conservatives charged educators were pushing a liberal agenda. Conservatives like Todd Banducci, a college trustee. Those agendas are being woven into the curriculum. And, you know, who controls the kids, who controls their minds, who controls the college student, you know, controls the voter of the future and controls the populace. Banducci was speaking on a podcast called Idaho Speaks. He doesn't talk to mainstream media and declined an interview request for this story. The local Republican Party helped get a majority that agrees with Banducci on the college's board following the statement supporting BLM. When the college president imposed a mask mandate in 2021, they fired him. They then put his replacement on administrative leave when he questioned their ethics in hiring. Dozens of faculty and staff have since left. Now, the Northwest Commission on Colleges and Universities is reviewing the school's accreditation. So for those in the community who are thinking that everything's going to be fine and that there are guardrails in place, they're not. Brian Seguin is a librarian who's quitting at the end of the semester. There's, you know, conspiracy that has been woven by this board with mentions of a deep state and liberal indoctrination that folks have completely bought into and and has made our jobs very difficult. NIC has about 4,500 students. Patrick Murphy, a nurse who graduated from the college, says the local hospital, Kootenai Health, relies on the school. A lot of people, especially like from my nursing class, you know, they got hired right out of nursing school to go work at Kootenai. And NIC in general is a pretty big labor pool for this area. North Idaho College is also important to Native American students from the Coeur d'Alene Reservation, which is located on the lake nearby. Tribal communities tend to be very communal, so lots of people rely on each other. So the idea of going far away to college really is antithetical to the idea of a Native community. Victor Begay taught American Indian studies at NIC before leaving last year. He says most Native students start at two-year schools. It'd be a great loss, but even more so, I think the financial, the economic toll would be felt decades, if not one or two generations down. Christy Wood served on NIC's Board of Trustees for 18 years before resigning last year. She's also on the Coeur d'Alene City Council and says she's heartbroken that the school's future is at risk. We're an example of what can happen. We're a tragic example. When people put their politics before a community, lives are going to be affected by this. The commission in charge of accreditation is visiting the campus at the end of the month. It's expected to decide whether to withdraw accreditation this summer. If it does, students could lose federal financial aid and the school could be forced to close. For NPR News, I'm Lauren Patterson. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, new state laws that ban gender-affirming care for trans youth also allow underage intersex people to be forced into gender-related surgeries. And in one hour, we hear from two survivors of the Boston Marathon bombings on what has brought them moments of joy in the last decade. And for one of them, it involves the Red Sox. Right now, it's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. And Boston Ballet School's Next Generation, with the best of Boston arts training, returning to Citizens Bank Opera House on Friday, May 19th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org sponsorship. Mostly sunny today with a high near 73. Tonight, clouds move in and temperatures fall to a low around 55. It'll also be windy. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high near 68. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston. Later this month at WBUR City Space, we're turning Earth Day into Earth Week with a series of events. One will focus on what Hollywood gets right and wrong about climate disasters. Another will feature an interactive science fair for kids. Plus, there will be a concert that combines music and science. Check out the schedule and get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Rice University, where challenging convention, exploring new ideas, and making a positive impact is central to how they define unconventional wisdom. More at unconventional.rice.edu. From the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. And from Peacock, with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Falden. Several states have banned gender-affirming care for transgender youth just this year. But often these bans, they come with exceptions. In Georgia, Iowa, Utah, South Dakota, Kentucky, so-called gender-normalizing surgeries are still allowed. Maybe you know the term intersex? It's when someone's anatomy, chromosomes, or hormones don't fit the conventional idea of male or female. Doctors might advise parents of intersex children to have procedures that make them look like a typical boy or girl. Sean Seifel-Wall is an advocate for intersex rights who looks at these laws and sees hypocrisy. This is so bizarre, right? You have these trans young people who are very confident in who they are, and they're being actively denied affirming health care, whereas intersex children do not get to consent about the surgeries that they have. For Wall, it feels like the argument he's been making for years against intersex surgeries without consent is now being used to harm young trans people. 
This is so horrendous because a lot of the language that's in the bills that detransitioners are using, saying that they were mutilated, saying that these were medically unnecessary. I'm just like, medically unnecessary surgeries are actually happening to intersex young people. Before they can consent or without their consent. Totally. Basically, that's very compelling language that conservatives are actually using to describe these procedures, these gender affirming procedures that trans young people are getting. And that's, that, that's just not true. For people who don't understand, for people who've never had to think about gender identity and they're just like, oh, I'm a girl, I'm a girl, I'm a girl, I'm, a, you know. Right. What is the difference between a trans kid who says, look, I'm ready to make this decision about my life. Right. I want to transition. I want this surgery right. versus right. a kid who was born with intersex variations who gets a surgery and later on finds out about it and didn't want to have it. Or, you know, if you could just describe the difference. Right. I mean, I think the biggest difference is consent. They're trans young people who are like, these experiences during puberty are making me feel uncomfortable. And I want to be able to stop that. Intersex young people don't get to make those decisions about their bodies. It's more so we're told that these procedures need to be done for our wellness. But what is underlying that is that we're actually abnormal, that we actually need to be fixed to be normal. And those are just lies and it's paranoia. So, Sean, if you could break down what happened to you, in your case, what were the decisions made and how did it impact your life? So I was born with a variation known as partial androgen insensitivity syndrome. And my mother decided that she did not want to do a gonadectomy. And that's the removal of undescended testicles. Is that what that is? Yeah, totally. Essentially, I refer to it as a castration. Hmm. And so I had testicles, they were not descended, and they caused pain, right? Mm -hmm. I was 13. And the pediatric endocrinologist told my mom that my gonads, which he referred to them as, um, he said that they were cancerous. You know, my mom heard cancer, so of course she consented to the surgery. Was that not true? They were not? They were not. I, <laughs> I received my medical records at 25. They were not cancerous. And what would you have wanted to happen in that case? I wish that someone would have asked me what I wanted to do. I wish someone would have explained to me in the language that I can understand at the time of being a 13-year-old child, this is what's happening with your body. And no one asked you? No one. I think I would have wanted to keep my testicles and have them monitored. Do you want to see these procedures banned? I mean, I know they've been condemned by Human Rights Watch. They've been condemned by the UN called forced, coercive, medically unnecessary. Do you want these banned? I think every case is very unique. And I think what's happening now is that there is a broad stroke applied to all people with intersex variations. I do feel like there should be sort of like a case-by-case -case basis, as opposed to just doctors being the arbiters of a person's gender identity, a person's body. I think doctors should have to sort of really be accountable for why these procedures are being done. So it sounds like you and the medical societies that I read their statements on this today, not 
in the 90s when this happened to you, they talked about approaching each case with individual compassionate care, that this is an evolving area of medicine, that an interdisciplinary team needs to look at this before any decision is made. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like you fully disagree with that approach. I mean, these are the types of things that the Society for Pediatric Urology say. But the problem is these care teams, these multidisciplinary teams, they're not actually functioning. At the end of the day, what's often happening is that parents are seeing surgeons before they're actually getting psychological support. Affirming health care for intersex children is actually being compassionate and actually treating each case differently. And that is not what's happening. Back in the 90s, when your mom made that decision thinking maybe you had cancer and other parents made mm -hmm. decisions, maybe because they were scared that their kids would get bullied and that they wouldn't fit in. It doesn't sound like you're saying those were bad parents. It sounds like you're saying those were parents that were making what they thought was the best decision based on the medical advice they were given. Right. I mean, I think, yes, there are parents who make decisions based on the information that they're given. And I think also a lot of parents have biases who are just like, I want my kid to be able to pee standing up. I don't want my little girl to look like a man. Mm. So I think this culture that surrounds the medicalization of intersex children, you know, it impacts everyone. And I think it reveals what we have internalized around gendered norms. Sean Seifelwall is an advocate for intersex rights. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Coming up here on Morning Edition, a new report finds that the last U.S. Census may have undercounted Asian Americans in some states and counties, putting fair political representation at risk. And in one hour, the increasing number of U.S. prisoners being jailed by Russia. It's 729. A quick reminder that the WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the new WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall School in Waltham, Mass. For nearly 200 years, day and boarding students have achieved their best at CHCH. And next year, they will be opening doors and welcoming students to the new Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall Middle School. Learn more at their open house on April 23rd. chch.org slash open house. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Police in Kentucky say the gunman who killed five people at the Old National Bank building in Louisville yesterday was a bank employee. More than a half dozen others were wounded before responding officers killed the 25-year-old attacker. Investigators say they're still looking at a motive. The gunman live-streamed the attack. A 26-year-old police officer who'd graduated from the police academy less than two weeks ago was critically injured after being shot in the head. The mother of a six-year-old boy who shot and wounded his teacher in a Virginia classroom is now facing charges. Ryan Murphy with member station WHRO reports. A grand jury indicted 25-year-old Deja Nicole Taylor on two counts, felony child neglect and a misdemeanor for recklessly leaving a loaded firearm accessible to a child. 
the charges could carry a combined six years behind bars. Newport News police say Taylor's six-year-old son used her handgun to shoot his first-grade teacher at Richneck Elementary School in January. Prosecutors have now asked for a special grand jury to investigate security issues that may have contributed to the incident. The injured teacher, Abby Zwerner, is suing the school district. Her lawsuit says a school administrator was repeatedly warned that the child was armed and posed a threat. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Murphy. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. On Beacon Hill today, Democrats in the State House are expected to make their tax reform plan public. They say the plan is meant to give financial relief to residents regardless of income. They say it also makes Massachusetts competitive with other states. Legislators will vote on the proposal on Thursday. A group of Boston Marathon bombing survivors is building on their experiences to help others. The group was heavily inspired by a visit from U.S. veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. WBMR Stevie Chapman has more. The survivors behind One World Strong call the connection they made with those veterans priceless. And it was the first time that many of us knew we'd be okay was when we were visited by somebody who would experienced something similar. Founder Dave Fortier says he wanted to do the same for others, so he started looking for organizations to volunteer his time. It was important that it was an organization that does this work without regard to race, religion, ethnic background, politics. It's just people helping people. He couldn't find one, so he started One World Strong. Fortier says the foundation has now helped hundreds of people across the world including victims of the Pulse nightclub shooting, the Manchester, England arena bombing, and terror attacks in the Middle East. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. Police in Shrewsbury are the latest in Massachusetts to wear body cameras. Right now, the program involves 10 officers who volunteered to wear the cameras. All officers in Shrewsbury are expected to begin wearing the cameras by this fall. Police in both Lowell and Southborough have also started wearing cameras within the last week. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. The Red Sox lost to the Rays 1-0 last night in St. Petersburg. The teams will play again tonight. Also tonight, the Bruins will host the Washington Capitals. A mix of sun and clouds today and will have highs in the low 70s. Tonight, the winds pick up and temperatures fall to lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, partly sunny with highs in the upper 60s. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. It is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Layla Falden. Good morning. A new report is raising questions about how well the last U.S. Census counted Asian Americans. There are signs that back in 2020, many Asian Americans may have been left out of the population counts for some states and counties. And that would affect how political power and federal funding are shared for the next decade. NPR's Hansi Lo Wang reports. 
Last year, the Census Bureau announced that its once-a-decade headcount in 2020 made some unusual history. For the first time, it found a statistically significant national overcount of the Asian population, driven by counting residents more than once at different addresses. It's only in one piece of the puzzle. Terry Almenis is a senior director of census programs at Asian Americans Advancing Justice, AAJC. The advocacy group recently released a new report that tells a more complicated story. When you look at lower geographic levels, you will see that Asian Americans are actually being missed as well as being overcounted in different areas. Areas with potential undercounting of Asian Americans include Alaska, Iowa, New Hampshire, and four other states, plus rural counties in the Midwest, Mountain West, and the South, all despite a national net overcount rate for Asian Americans of about 2.6%. That aggregate national number actually hides what's happening for the community. Certainly for the general public, there is this narrative that could formulate Paul Ong is a former advisor to the Census Bureau who directs the UCLA Center for Neighborhood Knowledge and worries that national overcount could feed into a myth about Asian Americans. It goes along probably with the model minority narrative that somehow there is some statistical result that says that there are no problems among Asian Americans and therefore we don't need to pay attention to them. But Ong says more attention is needed because there are so many different groups that make up the country's Asian-American population and their differences in housing, income, U.S. citizenship status and languages spoken at home can lead to different levels of participation in the census. Still, there is another way some census advocates look at any overcounting of Asian-Americans in the 2020 census. Maybe it can also be reframed in thinking that the investment they made really paid off and then some. Dia Basu Sen is the executive director of SUPNA NYC. That's a community organization in the Bronx that supports low-income South Asian immigrant women. It means that we were able to reach people in a pandemic where, you know, our communities were hit really hard and still people were completing the census. So I think that's a success. In New York City, Asian Americans were likely overcounted, according to the AAJC report. But it's still not clear how well the census counted Asian New Yorkers who, for example, are of Bangladeshi or Chinese or Indian descent. When we talk about Asians, we talk about a monolith. And most often, unless you disaggregate that data, it really doesn't show the true picture. And that true picture, Basu Sen says, is what community groups and the government will need to try to get better numbers for the 2030 census that will reset how congressional seats, electoral college votes and federal funding are distributed all over again. Anzi Wong, NPR News. Now to Europe, where French President Emmanuel Macron is questioning Europe's transatlantic allegiance. In an interview Monday, Macron said the EU's greatest risk is, quote, to get caught up in crises that are not ours, end quote. This was in reference to increased tensions between the U.S. and China over Taiwan. Macron warned his fellow Europeans to not blindly follow America's agenda. U.S. and European politicians have pushed back against those comments. But the question remains about where Europe fits in with the growing dominance of the U.S and China. We wanted to hear more about this, so we've called Noah Barkin in Berlin. He is a senior advisor at Rhodium Group and focuses on transatlantic China policy. Noah, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here. So Macron made his remarks following a meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. How concerned should the U.S. be about that? 
Well, uh, I, I think there is uh, some reason for concern. Uh, anyone who watched the uh, the trip, uh, uh, Macron's interactions with Xi Jinping and the messages he sent uh, afterwards uh, in, in, in a number of interviews uh, were concerning, uh, I think, from a U.S. perspective. But uh, I think one needs to remember uh, that France is only uh, one of 27 EU countries uh, and there are... Uh, many other countries who, who think differently, I, I don't think that Macron's messages necessarily reflect uh, the European consensus on China. So I was going to ask you about that because Republican Senator Marco Rubio uh, asked in response to Macron's remarks whether he was speaking for himself or for the whole of Europe. Um, you're saying hmm, perhaps not. So tell me, how are other European leaders reacting to this? Well, I don't think you're going to see uh, European, lead, European leaders come out and, and, and sort of condemn or, or criticize Macron in public. We have seen uh, a number of senior uh, uh, German uh, uh, officials, for example, come out and, uh, uh, and, and criticize Macron, uh, members of the German parliament. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it's gonna. We're gonna have to see how this uh, how this plays out. I think uh, we're gonna have intense discussions over the coming months uh, within the EU about China policy. The European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, who was in Beijing with Macron, gave an important speech about ten days ago on China, signaling that uh, she wants to have a more intense discussion about China policy. And I think that's gonna. That's going to happen in the coming months, and we'll see how much support for Macron there is. So, But it isn't the first time that Macron has called for a more strategic autonomy of the European bloc. So I have two questions about that. How would you describe the transatlantic relationship between the U.S. and, and France at this moment? And, and what is Europe's position in, the, in this growing tension between the U.S. and China? Yeah, well, I mean, France has for, for a long time uh, promoted this idea of strategic autonomy, and that started uh, really uh, in earnest during the Trump administration. There was a concern about uh, as much about U the U.S. as about, uh, about China sort of forcing decisions on Europe. So Macron pushed back against that. Uh, this is also in the tradition of Charles de Gaulle, who, who after World War II, uh, uh, was also pushing for a, a, a sort of a, a France first line. Um, so strategic autonomy uh, is, is something that uh, people have different views on this in Europe. Um, I, I think uh, looking ahead, uh, France and the U.S. Uh, got over the dispute over AUKUS, this uh, nuclear submarine deal between the U.S., U.K., uh, and Australia, uh, Europe, and the U.S. have gotten over the uh, chaotic pullout from Afghanistan. So uh, my sense is that this is uh, certainly uh, concerning, uh, but it, it's something that Europe and the U.S. can get, get over. That's Noah Barkin. He's a senior advisor at Rhodium Group and a visiting senior fellow in the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Thanks so much. Good to be here. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Next on Morning Edition, Boston hospitals drew wide praise for their response to the marathon bombings 10 years ago. But it's not clear that they would have the resources to handle a similar emergency today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Muzzin Audio, offering high-fidelity FM Bluetooth audio speakers in an array of nostalgic designs and colors available at muzzinaudio.com. 
and Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. Partly sunny and low 70s today, windy and mid-50s tonight, partly sunny again tomorrow in the upper 60s. It's 50 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This week, we're remembering 10 years since the Boston Marathon bombings. Back then, when the explosions sounded, hospitals had just a few minutes' warning before victims started to arrive. Their response became a model for how to handle a mass casualty event. As WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports, hospitals today are more crowded and have fewer staff. That's raising questions about how they'd handle a similar emergency. And a warning, this story has some audio and descriptions that might be disturbing for some listeners. An ambulance pulls into the drafty parking garage at Massachusetts General Hospital. It's the same spot where clinicians triaged patients after the marathon bombings. The victims arrived bloody. They had shrapnel wounds. Some were on the verge of losing limbs. Staff rushed them inside for blood transfusions and surgery. Dr. Paul Bittinger led Mass General's response in the ER that day. This is the acute area of the emergency department, which is where uh, we did all the resuscitations uh, on Marathon Monday 10 years ago. Bittinger says healthcare workers' quick actions saved lives. Within half an hour of the explosions, Boston hospitals had received dozens of critically wounded patients. It never felt frantic. Uh, it didn't feel fully calm either. I would say it felt uh, tense. Hospital staff had time to prepare, thanks in part to first responders stationed at the marathon. Emergency Medical Services Chief James Hooley got a warning out to hospitals on a special radio network. Would you uh, notify all the hospitals that there's been uh, potential here for a mass casualty event? Ambulance crews divided up the wounded, so no hospital was overwhelmed. We probably have at least, uh, I'd say, 40 patients. I see. I have it. 40 patients at least. 40 patients at least. The bombs killed three people on the scene and injured nearly 300. Every patient who made it to a hospital survived that day. Experts say some fortunate circumstances helped. The blasts occurred within a couple miles of six level one trauma centers. That means they have trauma surgeons on site at all times. And the attack happened just before three in the afternoon when new teams of hospital staff were reporting to work. A lot of people say, oh, it was luck. You know, it was at the change of shift. It was on a holiday. But sometimes you make your own luck. And we did. Meg Femino worked in emergency management at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. She says Boston's hospitals trained for emergencies for decades. They honed their disaster plans after 9-11. Her hospital ran emergency drills every month, which helped prepare the staff for that marathon Monday. 
everybody who came in said they knew exactly what to do because they had practiced it so much before in snowstorms, in drills. But anyone who works in a hospital or has been to an ER recently knows that any ordinary day now can feel almost like an emergency. Hospitals are jam-packed, staff are spread thin, and many patients are sicker, including those who delayed care during the pandemic. This is what worries emergency doctors like Eric Goralnik at Brigham and Women's Hospital. If you imagine a large amount of patients coming in from a mass casualty on top of what we're caring for, it's a disaster upon a disaster. So not only would there be challenges of caring for that influx of patients, but there'd be challenges caring for the patients that we do have. Many emergency departments are so full, they're treating patients in noisy, cramped hallways every day. At Mass General, Dr. Emily Miller says it's hard to provide quality care in a medical system that sometimes feels like it's on the brink of failure. We're pushing, we're pushing, we're pushing, we're doing everything we can, and we're, we're hanging in there, but it sort of feels like we're hanging on by our fingernails a lot of the times. That's why many emergency response experts say now it takes a new level of planning to be ready for a large-scale disaster. Mass General has designed a buffer zone where staff can put patients during a surge. It's a quiet corridor near the emergency room, lined with electrical outlets. Dr. Paul Bittinger says if the ER needs to be cleared out in a hurry, staff can wheel 15 patients to this hallway and plug their monitors into the wall. It's just one example of how hospitals prepare for all kinds of threats, from hurricanes and plane crashes to the increasingly frequent mass shooting. It takes practice, it takes time, but I think across many of the hospitals, there's really an ongoing commitment to do that to, to make sure we're still ready 10 years later. The pandemic stressed the healthcare system, but it also forced hospitals to get creative and work together to navigate an unfamiliar crisis. That experience could be essential for battling new threats in the years ahead. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Coming up at 845, we'll hear about a group of marathon bombing survivors who are helping other victims of traumatic events cope with their experiences. Funding for WBUR Boston Marathon coverage comes from Marathon Sports, remembering all those affected by the bombings at the 2013 Boston Marathon. Marathonsports.com. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. The Chinese military declared it is ready to fight after three days of drills around self-governing Taiwan in a warning against its claims of independence. Police in Louisville, Kentucky, are searching for the motive for a shooting at a bank that killed five people and wounded eight others. In Boston, the funeral for longtime civil rights activist and state representative Mel King will be held today in the South End. We'll get today's top stories in 10 minutes. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app, and at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply 
then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. A classroom full of six-year-olds, their lives disrupted forever when Russia invaded Ukraine. Now first graders, they and their families, struggle to rebuild their lives. An air raid siren goes off, and Bogdan leans forward in his car seat and asks his mom, Does that mean there are missiles above us? Their story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, psychologist Lawrence Steinberg talks about his new book about how to parent adult children. It's 7.51. WBUR supporters include MIT Museum with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. Low 70s today under partly sunny skies. We'll have some high winds tonight, and it falls to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, upper 60s, again under partly sunny skies. It's 50 degrees in Boston at 751. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. A while back, the AARP asked Lawrence Steinberg for help. The Organization for Retired People said its members had a problem how to parent their adult children who weren't quite ready to leave the nest. They were hearing from members about how challenging this time was for them and how there weren't any resources out there for them. Steinberg is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Temple University. He took on the challenge and wrote a book called You and Your Adult Child, How to Grow Together in Challenging Times. When it comes to parents of grown children, Steinberg has a view not unlike that of DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Parents don't really get it. Parents don't fully understand how hard it is to be in your 20s or 30s today. And so in some senses, a lot of the issues that parents confronted when their kids were teenagers are still surfacing during the young adult years. And I think that that's very surprising for parents. But we were in our 20s and 30s once, Lawrence. What's what's so different? Well, the economy is very different. The labor force is very different. I mean, the, the challenges are huge, and it just takes so much more time and money to make the full transition into adulthood. And people nowadays are making that transition at later and later ages. And so a lot of the things that people in our generation did when they were in their mid-20s, let's say, have been pushed into the 30s. And I think this takes parents by surprise. So then with so many adult children relying on their parents more and more, then how can the two ever be on equal footing as adults when the bonds of dependency remain? Well, I'm not sure that striving for an equal relationship is what the goal ought to be. One of the reasons I wrote the book was that I want parents to understand what it's like to be a young adult today and to adjust their parenting accordingly. The other point is that Today's parents have been so involved in their kids' lives from the time that their children were very, very young. I mean, they, you know, searched for preschool like it was a life and death decision. They were hugely involved in their kids' education, not only helping with their children's college applications, but sometimes writing, you know, the essays for them. And so now... I think a lot of parents wonder, what is the appropriate level of involvement in my child's life now that my child's an adult? But I want to be less involved as a parent in my adult's life. I already worry because I'm a parent and I'm going to worry about them forever, but I want to worry less. I think most of us want to worry less. 
But given the financial dependence that's there in many households where kids in their 20s and 30s need their parents to help them, it really is difficult to not be involved. Now, Lawrence, um, I became a grandparent very, very young. Uh, I was 39, so I was an extremely young grandparent. I immediately, when I picked up your book, went to chapter eight. That's the last chapter on grandparenting. And in the book, you lay out three reasons why grandparents should keep their opinions about parenting to themselves. So I want to go through them one by one. Let's start with the first one, which is fads and fashions in parenting change. And I understand when the years go by, you get more information and we become more knowledgeable about things. But aren't certain things tried and true? Yes, to, to, to some extent. But if you look at the history of parenting advice books, what you see is that there are changes from generation to generation. And so one reason to resist giving your opinion to your adult child about their parenting style is that the books that they're reading and the advice that they're getting from their pediatricians, uh, they're very different than the books that we read um, and the advice that we got. I always think like when my kids finally get around to following the advice that I give them, it's only after they've asked a million different other people and consulted millions of other books before they finally come back to the advice that I gave them from the beginning. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. But I think that one of the struggles that adult children go through is establishing some kind of autonomy from their parents. And I think what you need to recognize as a grandfather and as a father is that when your kids push back and don't follow your advice on parenting, it's not about you. It's, it's about their need to see themselves as autonomous, competent adults who don't have to rely on their parents anymore. Okay, so second reason, second reason for grandparents to keep their parenting opinions to themselves. You write that it's a no-win situation. So if it's a no-win situation, why should I say anything at all? Because you can't resist the impulse because you see <laughs> your kid doing something that drives you crazy. And as I say, you know, if it's, if it's that hard to watch, get up and leave the room um, because it is a no-win situation. If your child isn't doing something that's going to really harm the baby, it's better just to sit back and, and not offer unsolicited advice. All right. Now, reason number three why grandparents should keep their opinions about parenting to themselves. And you write that you might undermine your kid's confidence at a time when they f need to feel more assured about their parenting skills. Yeah. And I think that a couple of things that parents perhaps could do more of is complimenting their children when they like something that they see them doing, when they feel that their kids are parenting in an effective and thoughtful way and not just save your remarks for the times when you disagree with how they've handled the situation. Now, I grew up in a Latin American household where my grandparents had just as much authority over me as my mom. Uh, my grandparents didn't have to ask my mom permission for anything, you know, much less any little thing. How much of a cultural divide, Lawrence, do you think there is when it comes to grandparenting and, and the parent to adult child relationship? I think it's huge. And I think that as our nation becomes increasingly diverse in terms of people's ethnic and cultural backgrounds, we're going to see very different dynamics in families and very different kinds of relationships between parents and their adult children. Some of my friends who are married to individuals whose families came from Asia or, or from Mexico, let's say, say that they're expected to maintain much closer bonds with their own parents. And, and I think that can sometimes be difficult because 
a child of immigrants may be comparing herself or himself to the other American kids that they meet in college or, you know, in the neighborhood, whereas the parents may be comparing the behavior of their child to how they behave toward their parents when they were a young adult. And those may be very, very different ways of relating to each other. That's Lawrence Steinberg. His new book is called You and Your Adult Child, How to Grow Together in Challenging Times. Lawrence, thanks. Thanks. You know, parents are the same no matter time, no place. They don't understand that us kids are going to make some mistakes. So to you other kids all across the land, there's no need to argue. Parents just don't understand. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust. Welcoming spring at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. Opens Sunday. The beauty of native plants in a dramatic landscape. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. And the ICA with Simone Lee. A history-making exhibition makes its U.S. debut now on view. ICABoston.org. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUH Isbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. National leaders are again calling for increased gun control measures after a former Kentucky bank employee live-streamed his fatal shooting of five people. It's Tuesday, April 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, drug company executives in Boston and elsewhere are warning that a federal judge's ruling on an abortion pill may undermine the fundamental authority of the FDA. Also this hour. He's much more visibly an average Irish American than was his predecessor, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. President Biden pays tribute to his Irish roots with a trip to Belfast and Dublin, plus how a group of Boston Marathon bombing survivors have used their experiences to help other victims of trauma. They understand that you've been through something and there's almost an instant bond. And I've seen it in many places around the world. And it's as if you've known somebody your whole life. Mostly sunny and low 70s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Police in Louisville, Kentucky are still searching for a motive in yesterday's shooting at a downtown bank. Four people were killed by a gunman. A fifth person died later at a hospital. Louisville police killed the gunman at the scene. Justin Hicks of Louisville Public Media says the city is stunned. People are just stunned that it came to this city, right? It's still the kind of place where people know each other from high school or church or whatever. It's, I mean, so many of the victims are not just names here. They are people that people know. There were several vigils last night across the city and even more planned in the coming days. Justin Hicks reporting. President Biden leaves this morning for a visit to Ireland and Northern Ireland. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports his first stop will be in Belfast to mark the 25th anniversary of a historic peace deal. President Biden will commemorate the signing of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement that largely ended three decades of sectarian violence. 
National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the president will also reaffirm U.S. support for Northern Ireland and reflect on the progress that has been made since then. He'll underscore the readiness of the United States to preserve those gains and support Northern Ireland's vast economic potential. Biden is also scheduled to meet with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the leaders of Northern Ireland's five main political parties. Later in the week, the president will travel to Dublin to address Ireland's parliament and visit two Irish counties where he has family roots. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. President Biden has signed legislation ending the national emergency from the COVID-19 pandemic. This was declared a little more than three years ago. The declaration had helped expand access to health care. Later today in Louisiana, five law enforcement officers are expected to be formally charged in connection with the death of black motorist Ronald Green four years ago. From member station WWNO, Bobby Jean Mizick reports Green's death is also the subject of federal criminal and civil rights investigations. The officers charged are troopers Corey York, John Clary, Dakota DeMoss, a former troop commander, John Peters, and Chris Harpin, a local deputy. York is the only one charged with negligent homicide. He and the others also face charges of malfeasance in office and obstruction of justice. Body camera footage that came to light more than two years after Green's death shows troopers tasing and beating Green on a roadside in rural northeast Louisiana and leaving him in the prone position. The Department of Justice is investigating the Louisiana State Police for Green's beating and several other alleged uses of excessive force by state troopers. For NPR News, I'm Bobby Jean Mizick. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is joining other state AGs in protecting access to abortion medication. The two dozen attorneys general argue that a judge's decision to block the FDA approval of Mifepristone will put lives at risk. Here's Campbell. This judge ignored the decades of research showing that medication abortion, including Mifepristone, is safe and effective and decided that the FDA got it wrong because that's what he wanted to do. His decision was based on ideology, not science, and certainly not the law. Campbell assured Massachusetts health care providers who provi- prescribe mifepristone they'll be protected by state law. The state will partner with UMass Amherst to stockpile 15,000 doses of the drug. The funeral for longtime Boston civil rights activist and state representative Mel King will be held today in the South End. King died last month at the age of 94. WBUR's Amanda Beeland has more on King's legacy from those who knew him. Former Mayor Kim Janey tells Radio Boston that Mel King used to say, love is the question and the answer. To bring people together around a larger vision where justice was at the center, where love and equity were at the center, was his vision. Reverend Ray Hammond of Bethel AME Church says creating that vision meant loving all. He had a point of view. He was sometimes seen by people as being, quote, radical. But he carried himself with such dignity. He treated Ray Flynn, anybody else in the political arena, like they're human beings. The funeral services will be live-streamed online and viewable at City Hall and Roxbury's Bruce C. Bowling Municipal Building. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. The city of Newton will use a vacant hotel to house families experiencing homelessness. Newton's mayor says the city and state will use the old Hotel Indigo off Interstate 95 for temporary housing. About 60 rooms will be used for families beginning this fall. The city says it has plans to use the hotel as a shelter until 2025. Officials in Cambridge say the steeple of Faith Lutheran Church will be torn down today. The church was heavily damaged by a fire that broke out on Easter Sunday. No one was hurt. The cause of the fire is under investigation. Police expect Broadway by the church will be closed for most of the day. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. In sports, the Red Sox became the latest team to lose to the undefeated Tampa Bay Rays. The final last night in Florida was 1-0. The Sox and Rays will play again tonight. Also tonight, the Bruins will host the Washington Capitals. Mostly sunny today and in the 70s, a Red flag warning will be in effect later today. That means conditions are ripe for brush fires. Cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 50s, partly sunny tomorrow and in the upper 60s. It's 52 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include the University at Buffalo, where researchers are developing new technology for people to take control of their health, like an earbud-based system that can detect common ear ailments buffalo.edu slash NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. The Justice Department is asking an appeals court to put on hold a ruling from a federal judge in Texas that would halt the FDA's approval of mifepristone. That's a drug that's widely used for abortion care. At the same time, the DOJ is asking a federal judge in Washington state to clarify how the Texas ruling affects his order, which prohibits the FDA from limiting access to the drug. As you might imagine, these contradictory rulings are raising questions about the FDA's authority over medications. Meanwhile, some states are stockpiling the pills, like Massachusetts. Here's Governor Maura Healey. At my request, the University of Massachusetts Amherst agreed to purchase approximately 15,000 doses of mifeprestone. That's, That's enough, that's sufficient to ensure coverage for well over a year. We've called Holly Fernandez-Lynch to help us understand where we are in this very confusing, very consequential legal battle over abortion pills and the FDA's powers. She's a lawyer by training and an assistant professor of medical ethics and law at the University of Pennsylvania, where she has appointments at the medical school and the law school. Good morning, Professor Fernandez-Lynch. Thanks so much for joining us. First to the latest developments, the pharmaceutical industry leaders have issued a letter slamming the Texas ruling, which was issued Friday night. They argue it undermines the bipartisan authority granted by Congress, that's a quote, to the FDA to approve and regulate medications. First, I want to ask what you make of this whole issue. And secondly, has something like this ever happened before, where a judge inserted himself or himself or herself into an administrative or regulatory process like this? 
Great. Well, let me take your second question first, because this is truly an unprecedented decision. When the pharmaceutical industry develops their products, they do clinical trials, they evaluate the safety and effectiveness of their drugs, and they submit a massive dossier of data to FDA, and they rely on FDA as scientific experts, experts in regula regulations and the authority that Congress has granted to the agency to determine which products are allowed to be put on the market in the United States states. And what has happened in this um, in this case from the Northern District of Texas is that we have a single federal judge who has inserted himself standing in for the agency to say FDA should have never approved mifepristone because they did not have adequate data to determine that it was safe. In fact, we have over 100 studies over 30 years examining the safety of this product. It is absolutely safe, um, and FDA has has evaluated the product multiple times over the years. As um, Mifepristone, as you just pointed out, got FDA approval nearly a quarter of a century ago, uh, we mentioned that it is used to end pregnancy, but it's also commonly used to help manage miscarriages. Did the complainants here raise any new concerns about the drug? They really didn't. Um, they frankly cherry-picked um, a couple of studies out of the hundred that I that I mentioned. Um, there's there's no new evidence that was presented to the court um, that would change FDA's determination about whether this product meets the statutory standard for approval. What changed in this case was that ultimately the litigants were able to get their arguments in front of a federal judge. If this judges get to make calls on drug approvals, how would the pharmace pharmaceutical industry respond to that? You know, as I as I mentioned, right, what what the industry does is they devote their resources to identifying which products are going to be safe and effective, to evaluating those products, to submitting that information to FDA, and expecting that we are going to hear from the government with a unified voice from FDA that this product is legally available for marketing or not. Now, what may happen if this decision is allowed to stand is that industry is going to think, hmm, maybe we shouldn't spend our resources on drugs that might be controversial, that might cause you know, people to take us to court to say that FDA was wrong in approving this drug. Maybe we should just stick to things that aren't, you know, aren't going to ruffle any feathers. Um, and that's going to be damaging for patients who rely on vaccines, for example. We know that's a really controversial area of FDA regulation or perhaps gender affirming care. One more question. Some Democrats are calling on the Biden administration to ignore the Texas ruling. The White House says that would set a dangerous precedent. What's your take on that as briefly as you can? I agree. It is a dangerous precedent for um, for one branch of the government to ignore another. There are a number of steps that the Biden administration can take and is taking um, to follow, you know, the legal trajectory here, which is to appeal to the Fifth Circuit, appeal to the Supreme Court if necessary, and ultimately, it would get, uh, you know, a Supreme Court decision. FDA has the authority to exercise enforcement discretion um, in deciding whether to go after any company. That's Holly Fernandez-Lynch, Assistant Professor of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor, thanks so much. Thank you. 
President Biden heads to Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland this morning. His visit is part diplomacy and part homecoming for this country's second Irish Catholic president. Biden's ancestors came to the U.S. from Ireland in the mid-1800s, and his Irish-American roots are a big part of his identity as president. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith reports. Many modern American presidents have claimed Irish ancestry, from John Fitzgerald Kennedy to Barack Obama, who has Irish relatives on his mom's side. But none were quite as forward about it as President Biden. And as we Irish say, that's no malarkey. That's a fact. This may be hyperbole, but the only thing he quotes more than the great Irish poets is the wisdom of his Irish-American mother. Today, I'm Catherine Eugenia Finnegan Biden's son. That's who I am. Biden's family hails from County Mayo and County Louth, both of which he will visit on this trip. If you go to County Louth, there's still a place called Finnegan's Pub, which is, uh, Reverend, it's related to my, my family. Not, I'm the only Irishman you ever met, though, that's never had a drink, so I'm okay. Biden's relatives lived through the Irish potato famine and, like so many others over the centuries, came to the U.S. in search of opportunity. Expect that to be a theme in his remarks later this week outside a cathedral in County Mayo. According to the White House, Biden's great-great-great-grandfather sold the bricks that helped build the cathedral and used the money to bring his family on a ship to America. I think there's no doubt that Joe Biden is the most Irish of Irish-American presidents. Brendan O'Leary is a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. And yes, he says Biden is even more overtly Irish than JFK, whose visit to Ireland in 1963 was an event. Yes, here he comes down the steps to a tremendous welcome, the 35th president of the United States of America, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. That was the coverage on RTE as Kennedy stepped off Air Force One. Kennedy's election was a breakthrough. Electing an Irish Catholic to the highest office in the land is no longer taboo, which frees Biden to wear his heritage on his sleeve. Again, O'Leary. Indeed, I'd say he's much more visibly an ordinary Joe, an average Irish American, than was his predecessor, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. That working-class Joe image is an important part of Biden's political identity. On the policy side, his trip starts with a visit to Northern Ireland to deliver a message about ongoing U.S. support for the Good Friday Agreement, signed 25 years ago. That agreement, which the U.S. was pivotal in negotiating, brought an end to decades of sectarian violence in Northern Ireland, known as the Troubles. So it's a, a, you know, a huge deal. Max Bergman is at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and he expects part of Biden's message on this trip will be about holding up the Good Friday Agreement as a triumph of U.S. engagement in the world. And here's an example 25 years later where active U.S. engagement really made a difference. But the peace accord has been tested by Brexit. The U.K.'s move to withdraw from the European Union created new tensions over trade and risked new disputes over borders. There's a new agreement called the Windsor Framework designed to ease those tensions. But the political situation in Northern Ireland remains difficult. O'Leary says he expects Biden's message in Belfast to focus on economic opportunity that comes from peace and stability. America is not trying to interfere in the management of the power sharing arrangements within Northern Ireland. But it is very clearly giving a signal that if those work, 
well, then there will be encouragement from the United States for foreign and direct investment. Though much of this trip for Biden is personal, about connecting with his roots, he is also a big proponent of strong relationships between the U.S. and its European allies. And that diplomacy will certainly be on display this week as well. Tamara Keith, NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, a nonprofit in Seattle is trying to reduce homelessness by moving the populations of whole encampments into housing all at once. In your forecast, mostly sunny today with a high near 73. Tonight, clouds move in and temperatures fall to a low around 55. It'll also be windy. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high near 68. It's 54 degrees in Boston at 818. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Weston Nurseries. Welcoming gardening season with a wide selection of trees, shrubs, perennials, and gardening products. Hopkinton, Chelmsford, and Hingham, westonnurseries.com. And an unlikely story bookstore and cafe in Plainville with Caldecott medalist Brian Selznick and Diary of a Wimpy Kid author Jeff Kinney discussing Selznick's new book, Big Tree, Wednesday, April 12th at 6.30 p.m. Registration at anunlikelystory.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, the Commonwealth has ordered a year's supply of an abortion medication, the legal status of which is in question after a ruling from a federal judge in Texas last week. If that seems confusing, it is. Martha Biebinger joins us from the newsroom with more. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. This Saturday marks 10 years since the Boston Marathon bombings. Leading up to that day, WBUR is hearing from survivors about moments of joy they've experienced in the last decade. Jess Kensky and Patrick Downs were newlyweds when they each lost a leg in the attack. Here they are reflecting on the past decade and their moments of joy. I think walking for pleasure again. You know, steps were... When they were new, they were so precious that you would calculate how many you had to do X, Y, Z. And I think getting to be a little bit mindless with them again and do them for pure pleasure has become a real joy. Mm -hmm. The one that comes to mind for me is the Red Sox winning the World Series in 2013. I would uh, put on my Sox gear a couple hours before the game. Jess said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Fenway. She said, you don't have a ticket. I said, yeah, I know, but someone's going to call. <laughs> and inevitably they would. And I got to see the three World Series home games and when they won to go on the field afterward and what that did for the city and the excitement that it brought, the lightheartedness that it brought, the um, way in which it really felt like the team had pulled up all the energy that the city had from that Boston Strong spirit and applied it to their performance really felt special to me and it was just really fun. It was so much fun to, to have that kind of positive distraction when we needed it most. That was marathon bombing survivors Patrick Downs and Jess Kensky. Stay with 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org for more reflections on the 10 years since the attacks.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. From Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. From Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs, from hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. The coronavirus pandemic put tremendous strain on public health in this country, but it also sparked innovation. To that end, we're going to hear about a program in Seattle that works to get people out of homeless camps and into homes. Reporter Katie Riddle tells us how this strategy that was born in crisis could become a long-term solution. More than 30 people live in this homeless encampment. Nicole Alexander is trying to make friends with all of them. Good morning, Biggie. It's 9 a.m. Alexander walks through the camp. It's in an industrial area near a highway overpass a few miles south of downtown. Stripped out cars sit among RVs, trailers, and tents. She chats with one resident through a partially open trailer window. How are you? It's 38 degrees. He's under a pile of blankets. Oh. We can check in the car and see if we have any more hand warmers, Kay. Oh, yeah, you want to go dose? Dose, his daily methadone. I gotta go dose. Okay, do you have a way to get there? You're just going to walk? Oh, you're going to take the bus? Okay, then we'll do paperwork tomorrow, okay? This program is called Just Care. Outreach workers like Alexander spend weeks building relationships with people here. Together, they make a plan for getting resources, health care, food, housing. Then staff move everyone out all at once. Alexander is finishing a master's degree. She's starting her doctorate soon. And she has another credential. I have been unhoused, lived in motels, I've lived in cars, I've been a teen mom. A half hour later, she's huddling in a sliver of sunlight with camp resident Sean Lynn, filling out his paperwork. Are you currently using opioids, meth, weed, cocaine, alcohol, all the above, it's a party? I mean, pretty much it's a party. It's a party. If it's theirs, whatever. Okay. Are you on methadone or suboxone or interested in methadone? Treatment or not is up to him. People don't have to be clean to get help here. Alexander also asks Lynn about his mental health. Uh, it runs in my family, schizophrenia does, uh-huh. but it's like I've never been treated for it. Okay. Um, no diagnosis? No, no, no diagnosis. Okay. Now my mother and my uncle were both schizophrenic. Okay. Lynn has been living at this camp for three years. He's fearful about leaving the people he's met here. You know what I mean? These, these guys are basically family. You know what I mean? It's my street family. Could you see some benefit, though, to being housed? Yes and no. I've been housed before and been miserable, so I don't know. Whatever is going on for this person is my problem. Lisa Dugard is the executive director of the Public Defender Association, based in Seattle. She's the architect of Just Care. We're stepping in all the way. When COVID hit, Dugard and her staff were already working with people living on the streets. The public health crisis around homelessness escalated. Dugard had an epiphany. 
the best approach would be to get an entire camp off the streets all at once and into shelter. The only way would be to do it themselves. Number one, you start to hold yourself accountable for the outcome in a very different way. And number two, if we don't have a good answer, we have to keep, like, we have to find one. Since starting in September of 2020, Just Care has cleared 19 camps. They've housed hundreds of people, leaning heavily at first on federal pandemic relief. Getting each person into housing and keeping them there costs tens of thousands of dollars per year. Dugard acknowledges it's a lot. She asks, what's the alternative? If we don't do this and there's no other plan, we're all kind of dead in the water. In Washington state, it's not just Seattle proper experiencing this crisis. Officials estimate more than 40,000 unhoused people live in King County, at least 20,000 unsheltered on the streets. Back at the camp, a block away from the tents and RVs, Tim Crevlin gestures to the parking lot of his wholesale gift business. I mean, you can see this giant fence that goes all the way around. He and other business owners paid thousands of dollars to fence off the parking lot. They're trying to prevent people from setting up camp there. Um, and it's a total hassle. And it's unsightly. Crevlin points to the nearly 2,500 businesses that have closed in Seattle in the last few years. Downtown Seattle, people have just left because there was the homeless that were like living in their entryways and on their sidewalks. Crevlin is hopeful JustCare will help protect his business from that fate. The results across Seattle are promising. A recent evaluation showed that 70% of participants have stayed off the streets six months into the program. But federal pandemic aid has dried up. Staff are making their case to city, state, and county funders to keep the money coming. Yeah, it's going to be good. After weeks of prep, it's moving day at the Seattle camp near the highway overpass. When you get there, you're going to like it, I promise. Yeah, I, 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 I do, I believe. Nicole Alexander is helping 42-year-old Star Draper. Draper's been living in this camp for a year and a half. She's carrying a couple of trash bags of clothes, and she's nervous. I believe it's going to be the best thing. I just have to get through the first couple days. Yep, yep. You get there, take a hot shower, yeah. clean clothes. Put the TV on. Yep, you got a TV in your room. Wow. On the streets, men outnumber women. Draper says that's especially hard. Yeah, you kind of get bullied, kind of bullied, and um, don't really have your own choice. Most guys want sex. You don't have your own place to go home. You kind of have to give it up. Right. They want that for payment. Probably. So it's easy to trade sex for what? Everything. Just giving up a little because I get a little bit given. Like what? What do you mean Food. by that? Food somewhere safe. Somewhere that's warm and safe. The plan is to eventually move Draper into long-term housing. But today, she's going to a temporary home. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. An Uber driver drops her off before a Just Care staffer greets her. Hello there. Welcome to the Civic. My name is Marilyn. Come on in. Draper's room is on the third floor. She's relieved but unsettled. Unlike the street, there are rules. No smoking inside, masks mandatory, no guests. It's a little bit lonely. And it's a little bit. There's not really much personal stuff in here. I'm excited to take a shower clean, dry, and safe, but more alone than she's been in years. For Star Draper, that's a trade worth making. For NPR News, I'm Katia Riddle in Seattle.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today's WBOR Today newsletter just hit your inbox. It takes a look at how the state is stockpiling the previously approved abortion pill that a federal judge is trying to block. You can also learn about the new flights that are coming to Worcester's airport. Sign up to get to the newsletter every day at WBUR.org slash newsletters. Coming up next on Morning Edition, one of the two Tennessee state representatives Representatives expelled for participating in a gun control protest has been reinstated. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future. Supporting Youth Enrichment Services April 20th Black Diamond Gala and their mission to use outdoor experiences to prepare Boston youth to meet life's challenges. Yeskids.org slash gala and thoughtforms-corp.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Police in Kentucky say five people were killed in yesterday's shooting at the Old National Bank building in Louisville. More than a half dozen others were wounded, including a responding police officer who was shot in the head less than two weeks after graduating from the police academy. The attacker's been identified as a 25-year-old bank employee who live-streamed the attack. Father Shane Duvall is with the Holy Trinity Catholic Church in Louisville, where the gunman's motives remain under investigation. There's going to be a lot of people in this community that are angry and mad at him, and they have every right to be. Uh, But I still have to pray for his soul, too. Police killed the gunman. The Biden administration is appealing a ruling from a federal judge in Texas that could lead to the abortion pill Mifepristone being removed from the market. At the same time, several Democratic governors say their states are stockpiling the medication. Washington Governor Jay Inslee says his state has about three years' worth of the generic version of Mifepristone. Even if the judge's ruling is upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court, we will be able to distribute this drug because of our state laws now that we have uh, obtained 30,000 doses that are on hand in the state of Washington. The governor of Massachusetts says her state has more than a year's worth of the medication on hand. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. There are questions about whether Boston's hospitals could handle a major disaster. That's despite the fact that 10 years ago, those hospitals were hailed as a model for their response to the marathon bombings. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey explains what's changed. For decades, hospitals have prepared for emergencies, from blizzards to plane crashes to shootings. This helped them respond on Marathon Monday 2013. But now hospitals are more crowded and staff are spread thin. Dr. Eric Goralnik of Brigham and Women's Hospital says managing an emergency is harder today. If you imagine a large amount of patients coming in from a mass casualty on top of what we're caring for, It's a disaster upon a disaster. Emergency medicine experts say hospitals have to be more creative and coordinate better to battle future threats. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Thayal McCluskey. How would you like a three-day weekend every week? Two state lawmakers have filed a bill to test the idea of a four-day work week. Representative Dylan Fernandez says that despite technological innovations, the standard 40-hour work week hasn't changed. We haven't in a century (laughs) given workers uh, a meaningful 
break. And that's actually the sign of a society that uh, isn't moving forward. We have an epidemic of unhappiness in America. Businesses of all sizes and industries could apply for the two-year local pilot program. In exchange for participating in the study, they'd receive a tax credit. Miniature bottles of alcohol could soon be banned all across Martha's Vineyard. Edgartown and Oak Bluff's residents are set to vote tonight on whether to ban the sale of them. Supporters of the ban say it would cut down on litter and drunk driving. Those against it are worried it could negatively affect liquor stores. Falmouth and Nantucket have already enacted bans. Boston is considering one, too. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer, a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, now through April 16th, bostonballet.org. The Red Sox were shut out by the Rays, one nothing last night in Florida. The two teams meet again tonight. Also tonight, the Bruins host the Washington Capitals. A mix of sun and clouds today, and we'll have highs in the low 70s. Tonight, the winds pick up and temperatures fall to lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, partly sunny with highs in the upper 60s. It's 56 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from iDrive, providing cloud backup, full system backup, and on-site iDrive appliance to protect PCs, Macs, and servers from data loss due to crashes and ransomware at iDrive.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Layla Falden. Democratic Representative Justin Jones was sworn back in at the Tennessee Capitol last night, just days after being expelled by Republican members. The Nashville Metro Council unanimously voted to reinstate Jones, at least temporarily. Voters in District 52 elected Justin Jones to be their voice at the State House. And that voice was taken away this past week. So let's give them their voice back, and I'd call on this body to vote unanimously right now to do just that. Thank you. Jones and another young African-American lawmaker, Justin J. Pearson, were removed from the Tennessee House for leading gun reform protests on the chamber floor. That was just a few days after the shooting at a private school in Nashville. WPLN Cynthia Abrams was in the room with the council for that decisive vote and is with us now. Good morning, Cynthia. Good morning. So describe that vote for us. You were there. How did it play out? Yeah, so it was very quick. You know, the first course of action was suspending a council rule that could have delayed the vote to reinstate Jones by four weeks. But the council unanimously decided to eliminate that waiting period in Jones's case. And that allowed them to move on to the reinstatement vote, which was, like you said earlier, also unanimous. Here's how one council member, Brandon Taylor, described it. We work together in a partnership in this city to make sure that we listen to the real people and fight for the real people. So the crowd immediately erupted into cheers and followed Justin Jones, who was present in the chamber, out. And only moments later, he was sworn back in on the steps of the Tennessee State Capitol. Okay, so quick. He didn't even miss a day of lawmaking, right? Right, yeah. He was back on the floor right in time for yesterday's House floor session. 
Um, he walked in arm in arm alongside Gloria Johnson of Knoxville, a Democrat who was white, who escaped expulsion by just one vote. And Jones, when he was back in the House, said he intended to file gun control legislation with the remaining weeks left in session. And this is where the suspension of that four-week waiting period rule was really imperative because mm. we are nearing the end of session and there is a chance that if he was reinstated but had to wait the month, the session could have adjourned before he returned. Okay, so now Jones wasn't the only one expelled last week. There was also fellow House member, now former Representative Justin J. Pearson. What's happening with him? Yeah, so if there's a vacancy, Tennessee law says that it's up to the county councils to fill that vacancy. And just like the Metro Council voted on Jones, the Shelby County Commission, which is home to Memphis, where Justin J. Pearson is from, is set to vote on his seat on Wednesday. And so what happens next for them? I mean, Jones has been reinstated. Pearson may be reinstated, but this is temporary, right? Correct. So under state law, both Jones and Pearson, if he ends up being reseated, um, will both have to face a special election because they have been reseated on an interim basis. Mm -hmm. um, but both Jones and Pearson say they plan to run. And how have Republicans responded to Jones being back in his House seat after they expelled him? Speaking with my colleague who was at the Capitol yesterday, it seems reception was pretty smooth. Um, Republicans still have a supermajority. But the eyes of the country are on Tennessee moving forward. So it'll be interesting to see how Republicans respond to Jones's gun legislation. WPLN's Cynthia Abrams in Nashville. Thank you so much. Thank you. The U.S. and Russia have worked out prisoner swaps for decades, but those cases used to involve trading spies for spies. Today, an increasing number of private American citizens are being jailed by Russia. This now includes a Wall Street Journal reporter. NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie is here with us to tell us more about where things stand. Good morning, Greg. Hi, Michelle. So let's start with the latest on the detention of this Wall Street Journal reporter, Evan Grishkovich. Where do things stand? So the U.S. State Department on Monday formally designated Gerskovich as being wrongfully detained. Now, this comes two weeks or about two weeks after he was seized on March 29th and charged with espionage, which the Wall Street Journal and the U.S. government strongly reject. Uh, the designation means his case will be handled by a U.S. special envoy who specializes in these matters. But it's just it's not clear that this will influence Russia. There's another American, Paul Whelan, who was also declared wrongfully detained after his 2018 arrest on espionage charges. He's now in his fifth year of a 16-year sentence. And work with Gerskovich, the U.S. Embassy is still trying to get access to him. His lawyers were able to see him last week at the notorious Lafortova prison uh, in Moscow. So could you just remind us of how this case is different compared to those that people may be familiar with from years past? Yeah, if we go back to the Cold War years, the Soviet Union and the U.S. periodically detained each other's spies. They most often uh, kicked them out of the country immediately and sent them home. Uh, occasionally, they negotiated spy swaps, but it was often behind the scenes. Neither side really wanted much publicity. They just wanted to get their spies back and debrief them. But there's been a rise worldwide in these wrongful detentions of U.S. citizens, mostly in countries where the U.S. has strained relations, and, and these countries 
Rangers are seen to be acting for political rather than legal reasons. And I spoke about this with Chris Costa. He's the head of the Spy Museum in Washington. And before that, he served at the White House as the point person for Americans held hostage or wrongfully detained. In the last few years, the paradigm has shifted where countries like Russia, countries like China, countries like Venezuela have made it part of their foreign policy to roll up Americans, to arrest and detain Americans. Greg, how many Americans are we talking about? Well, currently there are more than 50 being held in about 15 countries. Uh, this includes both hostages held by militant groups and wrongfully detained individuals held by states, according to groups uh, tracking these cases. In Russia, there's been at least four American private citizens who've been wrongfully detained in recent years, the two we've just spoken about who are still being held, and two who were released last year, including basketball star Brittany Griner, who was freed in December in a prisoner swap. And it's controversial, but could the current cases be resolved the same way, another prisoner swap? Uh, possible, perhaps a little too early to say with any certainty. But at the moment, the U.S. isn't holding any high-profile Russians who might be part of a swap. There are some Russians jailed in the U.S., but also Russian leader Vladimir Putin may feel these U.S. detainees give him some leverage with the U.S., a way to put pressure on the Biden administration. Also, Putin and, and Russia uh, leaders have been very critical of any media organization, domestic or foreign, uh, over the war in Ukraine. And many Western and, and Russian journalists have left the country. Gershkovich, who has reported from Russia for six years, is among the few uh, who are still in Russia. That is NPR's Greg Murray. Greg, thank you so much. Sure thing, Michelle. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, we hear from the leader of a group of botched marathon bombing survivors who offer trauma counseling to victims of other terrorist attacks. Then at 9, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have international reaction to the leak of intelligence files from the Pentagon, plus the view from the UK as President Biden heads to Northern Ireland. In your forecast, partly sunny and low 70s today, windy and mid-50s tonight. Partly sunny again tomorrow in the upper 60s. Right now it's 56 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. With a range of up to 301 miles, the BMW i4 is 100% electric and 100% BMW. The first all-electric BMW i4 is available at your local BMW centers. And Gentle Giant Moving and Storage, employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com slash careers. Boston tourism leaders want more people to get interested in hospitality as a career path. Meet Boston is hosting a tourism and hospitality career fair today. The organization says it wants to support the local tourism industry's pandemic recovery. Helena Jakai is vice president of Meet Boston. She says people don't need experience to succeed in the field. Prospective employees should be encouraged, should be confident to really get into an industry that they've never been in and, and get back to work. I mean, the workforce definitely needs it. And I think that 
employers are really focusing on making sure that they have the ability to accept someone that maybe has not been in the industry. Jagai says nearly 70 companies will be at the career fair. It opens at 11. It's 844. WBUR supporters include Muzzin Audio, offering high-fidelity FM Bluetooth audio speakers in an array of nostalgic designs and colors. Available at MuzzinAudio.com. And Our Planet Live in Concert. The Netflix series is now a live concert event coming to Emerson Colonial Theater on April 23rd. Tickets at EmersonColonialTheater.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. A group of Boston Marathon bombing survivors is using its experience with trauma to help other victims of terrorism and hate crimes. The One World Strong Foundation is now growing into a network of survivors that provides support and mentorship around the world. Dave Fortier is the group's founder and president. He joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Rupa, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Is there one moment where you had the idea for creating this group? Wow. There's actually several moments that led to it, but I can really trace it back to the day everything happened. Seeing everybody rush in to help, that was really the beginning. And it was in hospitals and rehab centers that I would actually have a chance to meet veterans um, of the Iraq and Afghanistan war that came to visit us. And it was the first time that many of us knew we'd be okay. It's one thing for a doctor, a nurse, a family member, a therapist to say you're going to be okay. It's quite another with somebody with similar injuries that has been through something similar. So you felt the connection yourself and thought about giving that connection to other people. Very much so. We started doing some things uh, ad hoc after the marathon bombings. I was in Chicago. My phone lit up like a Christmas tree and it was people in Boston messaging about what had happened at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida. It was a shooting there. Many people were killed, many people were injured, and folks in Boston wanted to go to Orlando. And these are survivors from Boston that wanted to help others. And we found ways to do it. In those hospital rooms, we were able to make those connections. And there were were survivors of the event there that didn't even speak English. But you'd see that connection being made just by being in the room. Can you help us understand what happens in those conversations? I mean, do you focus on the trauma or you just try and have a regular conversation? So it's a regular conversation, and it's different everywhere we go. Not everybody heals the same way, and that's the most important thing to remember in all this. You know, they don't have to tell their whole story. They understand that you've been through something, and there's almost an instant bond. And I've seen it in many places around the world now, and Orlando was really the connection to it. And it's as if you've known somebody your whole life. It's that quick of a connection. But it isn't one conversation. It sounds like this is an ongoing conversation. This is ongoing. And that ongoing piece really came from the veterans that came to visit us from Semper Fi and America's Fund. What we learned from them was incredible. It was that peer-to-peer piece, but it's that peer-to-peer piece, not a one-time visit. You're there for life. And they said that. You you may not need anything right now, but in 10 or 15 or 20 years, you might. And we're going to be here. And we do the same thing. What's in store for One World Strong? It sounds like it's still evolving. Very much evolving and and technically evolving as well. It's building a mobile application. What we started to focus on was reaching people virtually. And that actually came from a visit to the Middle East where I saw a refugee camp and one of the first things I noticed was a cell tower. The other thing I noticed were people looking down at their palm and it's like, okay, we can connect here. 
it actually led us down the road of prevention. Stories of survivors can make a difference, not only for survivors, but people that might be thinking about doing something to harm others. And I learned that from talking with former Al-Qaeda, former extremists on the left and on the right. They didn't really understand what they were doing, the political aspect of what they were maybe trying to do, but not what that physical piece would mean to people that they were hurting. And our goal has been to get those stories out there to help stop these things from happening because those stories, if they can stop something from happening, we'll never know, but that's one less community that we need to visit wherever that might be. Am I right that you're running the Boston Marathon this year? I know you first participated in 2013 and didn't really expect to run a marathon again, but you are, right? Yeah, it was going to be one and done. (laughs) I thought it was crazy and still do, but yes, I am running this year and uh, and really excited about it. It's a big fundraiser for us now each year. We have six people running with us, myself seven, and then we've got um, all the Semper Fi and America's Fund crew with us as well for the weekend. So it's a bit of a homecoming now. And so what was a horrible event for many people becomes now that event that we can look forward to getting back together. Dave Fortier is founder and president of One World Strong. Dave, thank you so much for being here, and I will be cheering for you on Marathon Day. (laughs) Thank you, Rupa. Thanks for having me. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the future of the nearly 80-year-old Tupperware company is at risk after its stock plunged on news it may not have enough money to keep operating. It's 8.50. A classroom full of six-year-olds, their lives disrupted forever when Russia invaded Ukraine. Now first graders, they and their families, struggle to rebuild their lives. An air raid siren goes off, and Bogdan leans forward in his car seat and asks his mom, Does that mean there are missiles above us? Their story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. In Louisville, Kentucky, police are looking for a motive after a man shot and killed five people and wounded eight others yesterday at a bank. A Tennessee lawmaker who was expelled for protesting gun violence has been reinstated. And the Massachusetts Attorney General is joining other AGs in condemning a judge's decision to block FDA approval of the abortion pill Mifepristone. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay in touch with the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. Funding for WBUR Boston Marathon coverage comes from Marathon Sports supporting runners, walkers, and fitness enthusiasts from their first step all the way to the finish line, marathonsports.com. Partly sunny and low 70s today. Right now it's 57 degrees in Boston at 851. There really was a New Englander named Tupper behind Tupperware. His creation is in trouble now. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. And by Otter.ai. Otter's AI meeting assistant automatically takes live meeting notes, captures slides, generates summaries, and assigns action items. More at Otter.ai. 
I'm David Brancaccio in New York. The value of Tupperware stock was cut nearly in half yesterday after the company communicated doubt about its ability to, quote, continue as a going concern. Tupperware is saying it needs money and soon. The company says it's working with financial advisors to try to find that money. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes takes a look at the company's business model and what went wrong. Tupperware was invented by a chemist named Earl Tupper back in 1946. And at first, people really didn't get it. So very often people wanted to see it and touch it and feel it. Neil Saunders is with the retail and consumer insights company Global Data. There were products that needed to be demonstrated in a way. Enter the Tupperware party, where Salesforce members, many of them women, would have people over and show them how Tupperware worked, including the sound of air being sealed out. In recent years, though, Saunders says this kind of direct selling has become a lot harder. Consumers have access to the internet now in a way that in the kind of 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, they didn't have. So fewer people are choosing to sell the products. In 2022, the size of Tupperware's sales force went down 18 percent from the year before. The company has been trying to move the party around. In October, it announced it would start selling products through Target. One goal was to get seen by young people who weren't familiar with the brand. However, a lot of us already stocked up on kitchen storage at the onset of the pandemic to store all that sourdough bread we were making. When you buy a product that is good, you may not need to replace it that quickly. James Gellert is the CEO of Rapid Ratings, a risk and analytics company. He points out that lean times like Tupperware is having used to be a lot easier to navigate. But now those businesses all of a sudden have run into much bigger problems with tighter credit and higher interest rates, which make the cost of that capital much higher. Tupperware's money troubles are a problem not just for the company, but for the people who remain in its sales force, points out Neil Saunders of Global Data. Not only is it a potential loss of income, it's also a potentially very difficult lifestyle to replace. Saunders says direct selling allows a kind of flexibility, which is useful especially for women. Because parties can be scheduled around other responsibilities, like childcare. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. This morning, investors must be perceiving some kind of opportunity in Tupperware's downtrodden stock. While it closed down 48% yesterday, it's back up 7% in pre-market trading now. Markets more generally, London is back at it after the long Easter holiday in Europe, and the 100-share index is up three-tenths percent. Here, S&P futures are down less than a tenth of a percent. NASDAQ futures down two-tenths percent. You've done your taxes because you're organized, but others have eight days, including today, to file or get an extension. Our tax season coverage continues now with a look at a number from the American Immigration Council that finds that immigrant workers contributed more than a half trillion dollars in local, state and federal taxes in 2021, $525 billion. Here's Marketplace's Elizabeth Troval. Roughly a quarter of Houstonians are foreign born, so tax preparation goes down in many languages. English, Spanish, Chinese, Burmese, Vietnamese. Raymond Wynn is with Baker Ripley, a nonprofit that helps thousands of Houston's immigrant families file their taxes. This is a lot of, you know, explanation, handholding, especially for the folks that, you know, are filing for the first time. Those contributions from immigrants punch above their weight, says Steve Hubbard of the American Immigration Council. They're more likely to be working than just in the general population. So immigrants pay a greater share of taxes than their population would suggest. 
They also have a positive fiscal impact because many come as young adults ready to work and pay taxes. And the government didn't have to spend a dime on their education. Alex Narasta is with the Cato Institute. Immigrants pay $1.38 in taxes for every $1 that they consume in government benefits. As for U.S.-born folks, they pay just 69 cents in taxes for every dollar Uncle Sam spends on them. I'm Elizabeth Troval for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. On the road and at home, customers can simplify their insurance needs and protect what's important by bundling home and auto with Progressive Insurance. Learn more about Progressive and bundling at Progressive.com. And by the One Recipe Podcast. Host Jesse Sparks speaks to chefs and gifted cooks about their favorite recipe. Listen now to access the recipes for free. Workers are increasingly unhappy with bosses. They filed 16% more complaints about unfair labor practices October to March, according to the National Labor Relations Board. This at a time of increased union organizing. Marketplace's Henry Epp has that. Employees can file charges against their employer for a lot of reasons. Threats, interrogation, discharges, harassment. Kate Bronfenbrenner at Cornell says often these charges happen when workers try to unionize and employers try to stop them. As union organizing drives have increased in the last few years, more companies have crossed the line, says Bronfenbrenner. And they're going to do anything possible, including breaking the law, to quash the organizing campaigns. The uptick means it's taking the National Labor Relations Board longer to process charges, says its general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo. We are woefully understaffed, and the result of that is that the service to the public does suffer. That's even after the NLRB got its first funding boost in nearly a decade last year. If the Biden administration gets its way, the agency could be in line for an even larger increase next year. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. And just months after the U.S. Postal Service won approval for raising the cost of a first-class stamp from 60 to 63 cents, it's now shooting for 66 cents. Part of this is inflation, and part of it is people mailing less, given the electronic alternatives. 66 cents would make a stamp 32 percent higher than prior to pandemic. Our producers are James Graham, Ollie Dalbertansen, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen-Morby. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.